Good morning, Redeemer. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 5? Psalm 5. We're moving back into book one of the Psalms this week, and we talked a few weeks ago about how Psalms 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the Psalms. God lays out the way of the righteous, and then He shows us that the world is going to be given to a promised Messiah at the end of history. But things go to a dark place pretty quickly. If you'll remember, book one, Psalms 1 through 41, could be entitled David's Conflict. And that's where the Psalms move to conflict. In Psalm 3, David is crying out to the Lord as his son Absalom is trying to kill him. Then Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. It looks back on a day that's filled with trouble. And then we get to Psalm 5. It's a morning prayer. A morning prayer that looks toward a day that's going to be filled with conflict. Now, that's an interesting way to open the Psalms. God shows us the way of the righteous. He shows us that we need to follow His commandments. He shows us that He's in control of all of history and that history is moving toward a time when the world will be given to the Messiah, to Jesus. And then we just dive into conflict. It's a realistic way to look at life. Follow God's commandments. Know who God is. Remember where history is heading, but expect conflict. And here's how to navigate that conflict. Would you please pray with me before we read God's Word? Heavenly Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Psalms, Father. And we ask for Your help now as we read and try to understand Your Word. Would Your Spirit... Enable us to understand it correctly and apply it to our hearts. Father, would you enable me to speak truth clearly? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, please turn your attention to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. These are the best words I have for you today. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Amen. 
We live in a world that at least appears to be full of uncertainty. And I want you to think about the things that can tend to dominate our headspace for a second to illustrate that fact. Think about the stock market. It's uncertain. Stock market experts will often predict completely different things at the exact same moment. Or what about the weather? Have you ever really followed the forecast for a specific time of day for an entire day to see how often it changes? You know, there are a lot of Wednesday nights where we have to think about whether or not we're going to have to cancel children and youth activities because of severe weather. And so we'll follow beginning in the morning at 7 a.m. It'll say there's a 90% chance of thunderstorms at 6 p.m. And so we think, ah, it might not be good for us to have children and youth activities. But then by 9 o'clock, it's down to 75%. At noon, it's down to 50% and things are looking better. At 2 o'clock, it's down to 25%. We think we're good to go. And then at 4 o'clock, it's back to 90%. And we have to cancel. And those forecasts are from experts. We live in a world full of uncertainty, but we also live in a world that's filled with uncertainty due to sin. Vladimir Putin changed a lot of people's lives when he decided that he wanted to expand his territory and power. We have people in our congregation and on our staff that have actually had family members murdered. That rocks your world. There are many of you here in this congregation that have been touched by the uncertainty that divorce brings. So in the midst of all this this uncertainty, what do we find in Psalm 5? David's rising in the morning. He's preparing to face a world full of conflict and uncertainty. And he tells us in Psalm 5 to expect God's faithfulness. Expect God's faithfulness. And in Psalm 5, David exhorts us to expect God's faithfulness by making three calls or requests. He makes a call to be heard, a call to punish, and a call to protect. A call to be heard, a call to punish, and a call to protect. He exhorts us to expect God's faithfulness. And first, David makes a call to be heard. Look with me at verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. David's asking the Lord to hear him, and he wants the Lord to hear his words, but more than that, he wants the Lord to hear his groaning. That word could be translated sighing or murmuring. At the very least, it's broken language that is difficult to understand because of the intensity of the emotions involved. In Romans 8, Paul says that the Spirit helps us in these moments when we don't even know what to pray for. The Spirit intercedes with groaning too deep for words. Do you realize what a privilege that is for followers of Jesus? Have you ever been at a loss for words in your prayers? What you're trying to say just doesn't come out right, or you can't get what you need to communicate to the Lord. If you're a follower of Christ, then the Holy Spirit intercedes for you in those moments. David continues in verse 2. He says, give attention to the sound of my cry. In these first three clauses, David is essentially asking for the same thing in three different ways. He's calling out to the Lord to be heard. That's what he wants. He wants the Lord to hear him in the midst of the conflict and uncertainty that he's facing. So he says it in three different ways. Give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. 
Do you hear the urgency and the intensity of that repetition? It's a prayer that comes out in the midst of injustice, and it's an expectant prayer because David expects God's faithfulness. See, unbelievers can cry out and groan too. But a Christian's cry is different because God hears the cries of His people. Look again with me at verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. David prays to the one and only King, the one and only God, the God who is sovereign, who's in control of all things, the King who rules over all things. But the language here tells us more than that. He's not just the one King and the one God. He's personal. So David can call Him mine. He's my King. He's my God. That's one of the major differences between Christianity and other world religions. In Islam, there is no concept of Allah being a personal God. He's too far removed from creation. You can't have a personal relationship with Him. The same is true in Hinduism and Buddhism. Now, it's true that the God of the Bible is transcendent. That means He's above all. He's over all. But He's also imminent. That means He's near. He's personal. If you're a Christian, you can confidently pray like David does to your King and your God. In the middle of uncertainty, even suffering or despair, Christians can call out to the God of the universe expectantly. Look with me then at verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David expects God's faithfulness. He knows that his God hears his voice. He knows this every morning when he goes to him in prayer. David is preparing to face a hostile world. He's preparing to face people who are against him. He's preparing to face people that actually want him dead. And he goes to his God in prayer, knowing that God will hear his voice. And at the end of verse 3 there, when you read, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch, Sacrifice is actually not in the Hebrew text. The translators for the ESV have made an interpretive decision here. Because the verb translated prepare is often tied together with sacrifice, and the prayer is also offered in the morning. So it's possible that David is watching the priests prepare the morning sacrifice as he prays. But it could also be that David's preparing his actual prayer. He's preparing his request. He's thoughtful about how he prays, and he goes to God every morning because he knows that God hears him, even in the midst of uncertainty and conflict. David expects God's faithfulness. Charles Simeon became the pastor of a congregation in Cambridge in 1783, and he was very young when he took this role. He also cared deeply about evangelism. He really wanted to reach the lost. But for some reason, the wealthy members of his congregation, they didn't like that. They didn't really want those people coming to worship in their congregation. Now, at that time, families would pay for the best seats in the sanctuary. They would actually pay for the rows. So each pew would be numbered. So many of the wealthy members decided to lock their pews. They had doors on them. If you've ever been to a really old church, you may have seen that at the end of the pews, there are actually doors to lock the pews. So these members locked their pews and refused to attend worship services. So those lost people that Simeon wanted to reach, 
They had to either sit or stand in the aisles or in the back. And as a young man in his first pastoral role, Simeon could have caved. It would have been easy for him to just give in to the wealthy members of the congregation. But listen to what he writes about that moment. He says, In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. It was painful indeed to see the church, with the exception of the aisles, almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would on the whole be as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when without such a reflection I should have sunk under my burden. Charles Simeon expected God's faithfulness. You would have to to serve the way that he did in the congregation that he did. He ended up pastoring that congregation for 54 years. Not because he was such an exceptional man, but because of God's faithfulness. So how do you hold on to that expectation of God's faithfulness when things are hard or when things are uncertain? Well, first you continue to lay your burden at the cross. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Go to the Lord in prayer daily. Follow the example that David lays out for us in Psalm 4 and 5 of prayer in the morning and evening, and then pray throughout the day too. And then be reminded of God's faithfulness by His Word. Read His Word. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Satan wants nothing more than to separate people from the Word. Live in the Word. Another thing that you can do to expect God's faithfulness is actually to serve. Find a ministry in the church and serve there. It's amazing to see how often the Lord uses service to strengthen the faith of the one serving. It doesn't make you acceptable to Him, but it keeps you from navel-gazing. And God often uses your own service to help remind you of how God is working in the church and in the world. I recognize that it can be tough to take that first step, to step out into something that you're unsure of and serve. But the Lord often uses your own service, not just for the good of others in the church, but He uses service to strengthen the one who serves as well. Pray, read Scripture, serve, expect God's faithfulness. Second, David makes a call to punish in verses 4 through 6 and 9 and 10. And he begins by reminding us who God is. Who is the God that David prays to? Look at verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You need to know the God that you pray to. And if you're not a Christian, you at least need to know the God that you're rejecting. Why does David pray every morning? Why does he expect God's faithfulness? Because he knows who God is. He's a God that does not delight in wickedness. You could more simply translate that as wrong. You are not a God who delights in wrong. Evil may not dwell with you. God cannot be in the presence of evil. One commentator says that evil can never be a house guest of God's. God is holy. He's perfect. He doesn't change. And He must punish evil. His wrath must be poured out against wickedness. Look with me as David continues in verse 5. 
The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. The boastful, the proud, the arrogant cannot be in the presence of God. Have you ever heard someone say, God hates the sin, not the sinner? I think that that phrase is full of good intentions. But if that's true, then how do you explain the end of verse 5? Because David says, you, God, you hate all evildoers. Too often we want to tame God. We want to make him a slightly more powerful Santa Claus. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is strong. He's powerful. He punishes sin. David here says that he hates all evildoers. And David actually takes confidence in this. He takes comfort in this. One pastor says the greater the wickedness, the greater and more expectantly David prays because he knows God punishes the wicked. That's actually an expression of God's faithfulness. Expect God's faithfulness. And the language only intensifies in verse 6. Look at the text. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. He says you destroy those who speak lies. The word there translated destroy can in another stem mean something more gentle, like to perish or even simply to be lost. But the stem that it's found in here intensifies the meaning. David's using vivid, powerful language to demonstrate that God will destroy those who are wicked. He will destroy those who speak lies. He will destroy those who oppose his people. And the verb at the end of the verse, translated abhors, it's in the same stem. It's intense. The Lord abhors, he loathes, he despises those who are bloodthirsty and deceitful. And David moves a step further to describe who these people really are. Look with me at verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Who are these enemies? They speak lies. There's no truth in them. They might use what sounds good. They may flatter you. They may make you feel good. But their only purpose is to be deceitful. Their throat is an open grave. This means that their words lead to death and not to flourishing. These are the kind of people who just use you for their own selfish gain. And they may appear to offer something shiny and new. It may look like following them is the right path. There are many of these people in the world today that have built up large followings, but at their core, there's no truth in them. And you see this with people today who deny absolute truth. They'll claim something, like a man can be a woman, or a woman can be a man, just based on their feelings. And brothers and sisters, I'm not denying that people struggle with those things. That's a real struggle. And Christians need to show compassion towards those who are struggling. But following that path, following those who deny absolute truth, it leads to destruction. And all of this leads to David's call in verse 10. He's calling on God to punish evil. Look at the text. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. That may be tough for our postmodern ears to hear, 
but it should actually lead to praise. David is calling on God to punish those who are evil, especially those who commit injustice, attack God's people, those who actively lead God's people away from truth. And we have a hard time hearing that because we prefer to hear that God is love. And He is. But He's also holy. He's just. He's faithful. And His faithfulness means that His wrath has to be poured out. He must make those who oppose Him bear their guilt. He must condemn the wicked to be truly just. God is immutable. That means He's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that also means that He must punish sin. He must. We can expect that. Expect God's faithfulness because that's who He is. Do any of you remember the 1999 movie Blast from the Past? Brendan Fraser, Christopher Walken, Alicia Silverstone. It's set in the 1960s at the height of the Cold War, and Walken's character, Calvin Weber, is an eccentric man who builds this massive underground bomb shelter in case the Russians drop nuclear bombs. But one night, a plane actually crashes into their home, but they think it's a nuclear bomb. So they go down into the shelter, and they set a time lock for 35 years. That's supposed to be the life of the radiation. So they spend 35 years in this shelter. They actually have a son in this shelter. And at one point, Calvin is trying to explain baseball to his son, who's never existed outside of the shelter. He's trying to explain how a runner is forced out at third base. There are runners on first and second, a ground ball is hit, and a runner's trying to go to third where he's forced out. And Adam can't understand it. He can't understand why the runner would go to third if he's just going to be forced out. And all his father can say is because he must. Because he must. Adam's never seen baseball, so he can't understand it. But years later, When he gets out of the shelter and they realize that life's been going on as normal for 35 years without them, he goes to a baseball game and he actually sees the play that his father was describing. He sees a runner forced out at third base and he jumps up and says, I get it. I finally get it. You have to see it to understand it because he must. The runner must go to third base. He has to. To do otherwise changes the very nature of the game. Well, that's an unimportant illustration from a movie in baseball. To not follow it changes the rules of the game. But God, He must punish evil. He must punish wickedness. Because that's who God is. If we expect God to be faithful, then part of that expectation is that He'll punish the wicked. Because He must. And I have to ask, would you rather live in a world where God is only love, where He's not just, where He's not holy, where He doesn't punish wickedness? It seems simpler, it seems easier, it's certainly more socially acceptable. But if that's where you are, then what do you do with people like Adolf Hitler? What do you do with people who have committed genocide throughout human history? What do you do with those who flew planes into the World Trade Center on 9-11? What do you do with those who participate in the sex trafficking of children? You hear the things that I just mentioned, and whether you are a Christian this morning or not, you cry out for justice. You know that someone needs to pay. 
Even if at this moment you don't believe in God, you know that those things are wrong. Paul shows us why this is in Romans 2. He says, for Gentiles, that is unbelievers, for Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Believer and unbeliever alike understand something about justice. They understand that God must punish evil, that He destroys those who speak lies. It's part of His very nature. It's part of who He is. And brothers and sisters, it's part of His faithfulness. It's okay for you to pray that the wrong things in the world will be made right. You should pray for that. We can at the same time pray for the Lord to soften our enemies' hearts and bring them to faith in Christ while also praying that God will enact justice. David calls on God to punish evil, and he shows us that we can expect God's faithfulness. Third and finally, David makes a call to protect in verses 7 and 8 and 11 and 12. In this call again, he appoints to God's faithfulness. Look at verse 7 with me. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. David's just described all the evil people who are attacking him, and what he does not do is he doesn't compare himself to them. That's a real temptation, isn't it? You start to think, I know I sin, I make mistakes, but I'm not as bad as him, or I'm not as bad as her. But what does David say? How will he actually enter the Lord's house? How can he be in his presence? He says, through the abundance of your steadfast love, through God's steadfast love, his never-failing, never-ending love, that's how David has relationship with God. That's how he's made right with God. And notice the order of the verse again. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. So first, David is made right with God through his steadfast love. Second, he will obey his commands. He will offer worship. His obedience, his worship flows out of God's love. It flows out of God's acceptance. We can't get that order mixed up. David does not obey God and worship him, so then God loves him and he can enter his presence. God loves him. He declares him righteous through the blood of Christ. He enables David to be in his presence. And then David's obedience and worship, it flows out of God's love and faithfulness. Sanctification, that's a big theological word that essentially means becoming more holy, becoming more obedient. Sanctification flows out of justification. That's being declared right with God. You can't mix those two up. If you do, you'll be radically insecure. You'll never be sure of your standing with God because it's based on your performance. I wonder if some of you here today have never realized that you're living your life based on your performance. If you have a good week, you feel pretty good because you feel like you're right with God. But that's a really tiring, that's a frustrating, that's a really sad way to live. Because what happens when you have a bad week? All of a sudden, you're not right with God. But see, the gospel shows us that Christ has already accomplished salvation for those who have faith in Him. In Romans 5, Paul says, We have been justified by the blood of Christ. 
In Galatians 2, he tells us we are not justified. We are not made right with God through works. We're not made right through obedience. We are justified by faith in Christ. And this all flows right into David's main request. Look with me at verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. David's facing fear and uncertainty. Enemies are all around. And David acknowledges his need. He needs the Lord to lead him. There's an acknowledgement that David himself cannot make the way straight. And the same is true for each of us today. You may have just been diagnosed with an illness. You can pray verse 8. You might have just lost your job. You can pray verse 8. You might have lost a large portion of your retirement in this last six months. You can pray verse 8. You might have a child who is wandering from the Lord. You can pray verse 8. Your boyfriend or girlfriend might have just broken up with you. You can pray verse 8. You might have been rejected from the college or graduate school you want to get into. You can pray verse 8. You might be moving to a new city. You can pray verse 8. You might have just had friends move away. You can pray verse 8. Lead me, O Lord. Lead me in your ways. Make your way straight before me, despite all of the uncertainty swirling about. Despite all of my fears and doubt, make your way straight before me. Guide me through all of the potential pitfalls that might send me off track. In the midst of all of this uncertainty, David ends this psalm with an explosion of joy. Look at verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Do you hear David's joy? How does he get there? In this very prayer, David's talking about his enemies who are bloodthirsty and deceitful men. And that was just a few verses earlier. It's not like that was 10 years ago. He's in the midst of of uncertainty. His enemies are all around. There are those who want him dead. They're trying to lead people against him through deception and lies. But David knows that behind all of it, God is in control. He expects God's faithfulness. So he can say, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Rejoice. How or why? Because of God's protection, because of God's faithfulness, David says, spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. One theologian says that true joy proceeds from no other source than from the protection of God. We may be exposed to a thousand deaths, but this one consideration should be sufficient We are covered and defended by the hand of God. The unbeliever responds to God dismissively. The unbeliever typically does not even want God's name spoken, and that may be where you are today. And I want you to sit in that, and I want you to think about that and be really honest with yourself about why that is. But the believer, the believer finds joy even in the names of God. 
Those who have faith in Christ know that God blesses the righteous, and He covers His people with a shield. Does that mean that bad things don't happen to you? Does it mean that you don't suffer? No. But God shields you from being crushed. He shields you from any ultimate harm. He brings you into His presence so you can rejoice. You can sing with joy. Brothers and sisters, even in uncertainty, especially in uncertainty, expect God's faithfulness. But do any of you find it difficult to understand that it's David who prays this prayer? It's the first time in the Psalms that we see a prayer of imprecation. That means David's calling on the Lord to defeat, to destroy his enemies. But don't you think Uriah's family could have prayed that very same thing about David after David has Uriah murdered? Don't you think Bathsheba could have prayed the same thing after David uses his power to violate her and to have her husband killed? Remember when Nathan the prophet tells David the parable about the rich man taking the poor man's lamb. David even says, the man who has done this deserves to die. To which Nathan replies, you are the man. David's a sinner. He confesses that regularly. That's his reply when Nathan confronts him. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. There's nothing special about David that gives him standing before the Lord. There's nothing in him that makes him right with God. He is able to pray this prayer against his enemies, and he's able to rejoice only because of the work of Christ. That's it. There's no other way. I wonder if any of you struggle with prayer in times of difficulty and uncertainty because you struggle with that very fact. You are working and striving to do everything right, which is a good thing, but you're doing it ultimately to save yourself. And you end up tired, lonely, and full of despair. Even to the point that you find it difficult to go to the Lord in prayer. We all need to hear the gospel this morning. There's good news for all of us. Christian, your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can rest in that. You can rejoice in that. That's good news. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can quit trying to work to make yourself worthy. Repent of your sin and rest in Christ alone for salvation. If you do that, then you too can rejoice. You can enter God's presence. You can receive His protection. You can be adopted into the family of the Creator and Sustainer of the universe. And that's also really good news. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful that You are faithful. We are thankful that all of Scripture screams that out to us so that when we struggle with uncertainty, when we struggle with suffering and despair, we can go to You expectantly. Father, remind us that we can expect your faithfulness because you are faithful. That is who you are. And Father, for those here this morning that don't know you, that have not come to faith in Christ, Father, would you work in their hearts, even just to give them an initial curiosity to begin asking questions and get to know who Christ actually is and show them the beauty of the salvation that is found in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.